Recovery Elevator, episode 64. I, I wanted to stop right away, but I couldn't. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for one year and eight months, totaling 20 months today, which is awesome. On today's podcast, we've got Rachel. She's 29 years old. She's been sober since November 1st, 2013. And she said something that really resonated with me during her interview. She said she really wanted to stop, but wasn't ready. Oh, the dear John letter. It's hard to say goodbye. If you like the Recovery Elevator podcast, here's a way that you can support us without spending a dime. If you shop on Amazon, use the link recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon and purchase everything through that link. Go ahead and save or bookmark that link and let Amazon do the rest. This won't cost you a penny. You don't need to register for anything. Just remember recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon. Amazon will kick off a commission of the purchases made through that link. Here's the cool part. We're going to donate 50% of those commissions to nonprofit charities such as Angels at Risk, the Phoenix House, Foundation for Alcoholism Research, and many more. If you listen to episode 63, it was about Johnny Manziel. He was a Heisman Trophy winner, a football player who had promising NFL aspirations, slated to be one of the best, but he didn't quite grow out of his partying phase. In fact, within the last week, just since the podcast came out, he's already been in the news. He was arranged at a Dallas court for a domestic of violence with his ex-girlfriend, something like that. Johnny, from the outside looking in, it's obvious. You're an alcoholic. Do us a favor. Stop getting in trouble, dude. You're making us look bad. I mentioned in episode 63 that my ears perked when I heard a story of Johnny Menzel at the NFL draft hiding or sleeping off a hangover underneath a table that had like a skirt around it. So it's like, hey, where's Johnny Manziel? I haven't found him. And you're like standing right next to the table and he's just sleeping a hangover off at the NFL draft. A day which, if you're going to be drafted in the NFL, should be the best day of your life. This guy knew the draft was coming the night before, partied way too much, couldn't shut it down. That's something that I had a lot of experience with. Well, the not shutting it down part. I was really good at not shutting it down after having just one beer. So in the last two to three years, I have read several articles of his escapades. Why won't this guy simply grow out of this phase? But finally, I read one by the ESPN Bleacher Report, which is in the Recovery Elevator Show Notes podcast episode 63, that starts addressing him in more of a clinical view. Because his problem is not one of immaturity. It's not something that one can simply air quotes, grow out of. There were several phases in my life that I simply grew out of. I had a model train set taking over 75% of the square footage in my room till the age of 16. I was a late bloomer, let's just say. Thank goodness I grew out of that phase and started liking girls. I hope later on in life, fingers crossed I'm sober, that hobby will come back. Another phase I grew out of was drinking at bars. Yeah, I phased out of that. I switched over to drinking at home, alone. My drinking, which I'm sure my parents thought was going to be just a phase, is something that I didn't grow out of. It's something, unlike the red blanket sleeper I grew out of when I was 17 years old, that I will never grow out of. This is an issue that's clinical. It's not an issue of immaturity. The topic for today's podcast is why some phase out of college binge drinking and others are alcoholic. I got this idea from an article I read in Psychology Today by Sarah Benton. A link to this article is in the recoveryelevator.com show notes, episode 64. Yeah, this is a great question that I've often wondered myself. Why do some grow out or simply phase out of this heavy drinking period? 
So let's start with a fictional scenario. Let's say there's Paul, Sean, and Brady. They all hung out together, were best friends in college, and they partied their asses off. Sean, for his graduation from college present, was allowed to take two friends to London for a trip. While in London, Paul, Sean, and Brady, they didn't really care to see Big Ben and the other sites. Really, all they cared about was drinking. They had a great time. In fact, one night, after getting out of the taxi cab, they just started wrestling. This drunken wrestling match didn't end till 4 a.m. in the morning when the hotel staff knocked on the door and said, what in the hell is going on in here? Pretty much all the furniture in the room was destroyed, but hell, they had a great time, and they were responsible drinkers at that point. So Paul, Sean, and Brady, they've graduated college. Life and its treasures await. Sean and Brady, they start their careers. Sean starts having kids. Brady gets married, buys a house, becomes a real estate agent, and starts doing very well professionally. Brady and Sean are both doing fantastic professionally. Paul, well, he follows his passion of drinking. He moves to, let's just say, Spain, and buys a bar. And the rest of the story, well, it's not a fictional story. I am Paul, so you can listen to the previous 63 episodes to find out what happened to Paul. This was a phase that I just didn't grow out of. My seven closest friends, including my brother, we partied our asses off. I was the only one that apparently didn't grow out of this phase. Reason why? I had a genetic predisposition that when I drank enough alcohol, I would become dependent on it. I'd become an alcoholic. So in the article, it says research from the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, the NIAAA, indicates that about 72% of people have a single period of heavy drinking in their life. This period lasts an average of three to four years, and then they may mature out of it. Hmm, 72%. I would have estimated that to be closer to 100% with the experience that I had at my four-year collegiate institution. This period peaks between the ages of 18 to 24 and most often occurs during college. There are 11 million underage drinkers nationally and over 7 million binge drinkers. Unfortunately, there's really no way to determine who's going to phase out of this or grow out of this naturally or who is going to go on to become dependent on alcohol and become an alcoholic. The article lists seven reasons that describe why some people just don't grow out of this phase and then become alcoholic. I agree with most of them. Some of them I don't. I'll let you know as we go down the list. First one is, the Surgeon General's 2007 call to action report indicates that genetics account for 50% of the risk of developing alcoholism. There's the word, genetics. I don't really know if I agree with the 50% part. I thought it would be a little higher, but genetics is the number one reason. It's genetic predisposition to alcohol. Boom, you're an alcoholic. The deck is stacked before you take that first drink. I agree with that one. The second one is the age that he or she began drinking. This is another key factor. Specifically, research by the NIAAA describes that teens who begin drinking before the age of 15 have a 40% greater chance of becoming alcoholic with or without family history of alcoholism. I drank before the age of 15, but I wouldn't say it was regular. I maybe drank five, six, seven times before the age of 15. But still, I understand our brains really don't fully develop till the age of 25, so this one makes sense. I like this one. Third one is... Certain work or graduate school environments tend to incorporate alcohol into their social events, such as going out after work for class for drinks. This is typically done while networking. Well, this would actually make sense for me because my first job out of college was a couple restaurants while I could save money to go buy a bar in Spain. Yeah, so that one would be applicable to me, but I was an alcoholic before I even made it to Spain. I was an alcoholic before I graduated college. 
Number four would be the drinking patterns or the group of friends that he or she lives with or socializes with. Heavy drinkers tend to migrate towards spending time with other drinkers who kind of drink like they do and want to do the same thing. Sure, this reason makes sense on paper, but I basically lived that one and it's not true. Me and my seven best friends, we drank our asses off. They all phased out of it and I phased into it. Number five is the individual's predispositions towards mental illnesses, such as depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety, trauma, or history of PTSD may lead people to self-medicate with alcohol. A lot of the anxiety and depression that I've experienced in life came after I was an alcoholic. I'm fairly confident when I say that this does not contribute to me being an alcoholic, but it makes perfect sense that this could contribute to other people becoming dependent on alcohol. There's a lot of quick relief from a drink. I can handle about two weeks of crushing anxiety. After that, hello, Cuervo. The sixth reason why some people simply don't phase out of this period of their life is impulse control. Issues that include thrill-seeking, behaviors, and a need for immediate gratification. Impulse control sounds to me like an issue of willpower, so I'm not going to agree with number six. The seventh reason why people don't simply phase out of this time of their life is certain drinking patterns are red flags for alcoholism. These patterns would include blacking out, the inability to have one to two drinks, obsessing about alcohol, rotating their social life around alcohol, drinking daily or frequently, behaving in shameful ways while drunk, always needing to drink excessively before going to a party, and surrounding themselves with peers who drink heavily. I can check the box on about seven out of eight of those. I'm going to go ahead and say when you start experiencing those types of behavior actions with your drinking, you're not going to become an alcoholic. You probably already are one. So what happens to the people who don't phase out of this? For me, I entered into about an eight-year WTFIH phase of my life, otherwise known as what the fuck is happening phase of my life. When I was about 28 years old, I recall my Chapman University graduation, the guy talking about how the world and the dreams were just mine to capture. I wanted to go back to that guy, punch him right in the gut and be like, man, your speech was wrong. Totally wrong. All of it's wrong. Fortunately, that phase of my life lasted about eight years. The discovery phase of our alcoholism. For many, it lasts a lot longer. For many, it never ends. After now interviewing nearly 70 people for this podcast, it is clear every landmark on the journey to sobriety has to be hit. You can't skip any of these steps, but they can be sped up. What happened to me in Spain was a blessing. I was well on my way to becoming an alcoholic and actually was an alcoholic before I even got to Spain. During the three years in Spain, I drank my face off. I'd black out five nights in a row. I was a high-functioning alcoholic. Nobody even knew it. But those three years of heavy binge drinking sped my alcoholism up tremendously, and I'm thankful for that. Had it not been for Spain, I'd probably be drinking right now, into my late 30s, early 40s, 50s. You never know. I might not have even made it to my 30s or 40s. There was a time when I also wanted to stop, but I just didn't know I was ready. And that brings us to our interviewee, Rachel. But before we hear from Rachel, let's hear from our sponsor, CAFARE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With CAFARE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. 
In Cafe RE for $10 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face -face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. Rachel, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober for almost two and a half years. Wow. Congratulations. And Rachel, before we get any further, let's get some background about you. Maybe tell us where you're from, how old you are, do you have a family, what you do for a living, and give us some general background information about you. Okay. I currently live in Seattle, Washington. I am actually a Montana native, so I grew up in Missoula, Montana. And I'm actually a real estate broker in the area. I'm 29 years old, and I am married to also a fellow Montana. Does he drink? He does, actually. He's like a normal drinker. I mean, you know, one beer or not even one beer, and he's like ready for a nap. So. I didn't think but those people really existed supportive. in Montana. I didn't. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you like to do for fun? Um, you know, I, I love doing anything outdoors, and that's actually been something in sobriety that's been really cool for me to just like enjoy doing normal things sober and you know just getting outside we do a lot of like backcountry skiing I like to run do art and honestly just kind of living just day to day yeah I love it getting outside enjoying the present moment now let's reference the podcast title recovery elevator talk to me about two and a half years ago when you decided to stop drinking and just finally get off that elevator, was it a significant moment or was it something leading up to that? You just decided two and a half years ago, I'm done. Yeah. Well, you know, this is kind of interesting because two and a half years ago when I, you know, just decided that it was really time to stop drinking, I had wanted to stop before that, basically since I really started, but I don't think I was really ready. So you know, the moment for me was just the pain of continuing to drink was worse than, you know, getting sober, I guess. It was a process, but it wasn't like any particular moment. I mean, I had had some pretty significant and, you know, crappy things happen. Like I think a lot of alcoholics end up experiencing with as a result and consequences as a result of the drinking, but I just, I just needed to be ready and willing to do something different. Rachel, I'm going to comment on just that. Earlier, you said, I wanted to stop, but I wasn't ready. Can you comment and explain that in a little bit more detail, what you meant there? Yeah. So I got to give some backstory too. Like, you know, I, I didn't ever really drink. Until, I mean, I was, a, so I was a competitive swimmer my entire life. And I grew up with my mom being, she was an alcoholic. And I always said I didn't want to be like her. And so... You know, I kind of, I in high school and some of that, I stayed away from drinking a lot. I think I was just afraid. I think I was afraid of what was going to happen. And so when I, when I did actually start drinking, I was probably like, you know, 22, realistically, when I started drinking regularly. I, I wanted to stop right away. 
but I couldn't. And so me being ready was like being ready to do something, being open to something other than my own idea. And I had, I had to kind of go through what I went through, I guess, in order to get to that point. If that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Rachel, to me, it makes perfect sense. And that's why I asked you about that question is because I think you're the 65th person on this podcast that I've interviewed and every single person, including myself. So 66 total, they've all said something similar. That was like, I was ready to quit drinking or I wanted to quit drinking so bad, but I wasn't ready. And that goes back to one of our value bombs is the conduits really like when you're ready to quit drinking, there will be a power greater than yourself. However you want to look at that. It's like this weird feeling, a feeling of hope. You're gonna be like, okay, I'm ready to quit drinking. Sure. You might want to quit drinking for a decade, 15, 20 years, but the moments of brevity and they are short when you are actually ready to quit drinking, they're so short. And those are the conduits because, and that window can shut fast. So tell me about that. It was uh, two and a half years ago. You're, you woke up, you're ready to quit drinking. How did you do it? Yeah, that's interesting. You just saying that reminded me of that moment. I was actually walking and I was, I think I was actually walking down to the store. So at this point I didn't have my car because I had lost my car because I had lost my job, gotten a DUI. And I was walking down the store where you get some alcohol and I had, I think it's like the night before I um, drank and, you know, my hope, my family was on board and they, they knew what was going on. And I had tried going to some 12 step meetings. I believe I had a sponsor or, you know, had been in the works talking with somebody who was supposed to be my sponsor. And, you know, I had lost my job. I'd lost my insurance and I was supposed to go to treatment, but I looked down at my, my phone, my mom had texted me. I was actually going to go back to Montana for, you know, like a month or something. But I, I thought that I still had a life here when in reality I had sure. completely destroyed everything. And my mom said something like, you know, hey, do you want to come home for a while? You know, at that time, my now husband was starting an MBA program and I was just no help to him. And it was like this moment of clarity where I was like, Okay. Boom. Can you say that one more time? A moment of what? A moment of clarity. Bingo. Yeah. And it, I, I quickly wanted to, you know, the little addict in in me was kind of like, Oh no, you know, don't, don't go back to Montana for 30 days. My ego, you know, I, I, I didn't want to look bad. I didn't want to, I wanted to be able to keep doing it on my own. I was embarrassed. I was humiliated about where I was at in my life. And you know, I was really, really worried about what people were going to think of me. And, you know, something kind of broke in that moment where I was like, okay, I'm ready. And yeah, you're right. It doesn't last for too long because the walls of the ego and the disease kind of creep back in. But that was kind of the start of it for me. And that is a monumental point in the journey to sobriety is when that moment of clarity arrives and it's hard to miss because it just shows up right in front of your face. It's a feeling like you've never felt before on September 7th. I had that moment of clarity. Now, the reason why the moment of clarity is so short is because the ism, not the alcohol ism, but just the ism, which stands for incredible short memory, your disease, my disease, who I've personified as Gary, he'll start to be like, look, you know, it wasn't that bad. And your memory will just 
fade away of uh, the, the moments you don't remember how bad it really was. So if you don't act on that moment of clarity, that window will shut and you don't know when the next moment of clarity will show up. It could be the next day. It could be never again. So walk me forward after that two and a half years ago, there's day one. How'd you do it? Day two, day three, the first mm -hmm. month, what was your program like? Well, the first month I, I look back now and I realized that my, that my situation that I was in was a complete blessing. I had met my now sponsor and this is kind of an interesting story and kind of cool. Well, first of all, when I went to any AA meetings, I, the, the first one I went to, I was kind of like, these people are weird. I, you know, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to hear what people had to say. I was freaked out by the God thing. And, you know, I'd heard that it's a good idea to get a sponsor. And so when I thought I was ready, I went to um, a meeting and I saw this, this woman and she, and this is, this is kind of where my head was at, but she had a Nalgene water bottle and she seemed nice. And so I went and asked her if she would be my sponsor. And, and Nalgene um, water bottle and seemed nice. I know. That's pretty much everybody yeah. in the Pacific Northwest. I love it. No, and there, she was the only one that had an Nalgene water bottle. And I felt like I could connect. I don't, I mean, this is where my brain was at, but I was like, oh, you know, there's a similarity. I just felt so separate and so like, you know, in my own self and I felt so different and, you know, I'm not. But you were open I to the similarities, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I mean, in that moment I was, and it's come to find out she had gone to school in Bozeman, Montana. So wow. yeah, it was kind of a cool connection. And, you know, what she had me do was I ended up going back to Montana and being with and staying with my parents for a month because at that time I had lost my job as a result of my drinking. I literally lost, um, I had gotten in a car accident while I was drinking and lost my, I mean, it was like my life had like completely unraveled and it unraveled really, really quickly. And the wheels um, had come off, it sounds like. Yeah. And so what she had me do was call her every day. Um, and I hadn't, I wasn't used to just showing up and actually like being accountable, I guess. And I was just racked with fear. And um, I just kind of put one foot in front of the other and I reached out. I told people what was happening and I just, I followed somebody else's directions and suggestions. I had heard Hang that. On, wait, I got to, I got to stop you right there, Rachel. You followed somebody else's instructions and directions. Didn't you think you were able to figure this out on your own and maybe even eventually, I mean, we're both geniuses. You and I eventually figure out a way to normally drink again. What oh, was yeah. that like when oh, you yeah. followed directions and instructions? It was really, it was hard um, for me at first, but at that, but at that time I was, I was finally ready. You know, I, I felt like I had come to a point where I didn't have any other option. I had been trying to do it my way basically since I started drinking. And, you know, that, that was kind of one of the things is like, I always felt like I had a lot of discipline and focus and I was able to do things on my own. I mean, I was an athlete my entire life and it was like, everything was so structured and regimented. And, you know, I thought for sure I could figure out a way to, to stop drinking. And that's, you know, I mean, it was like, whether it was like scheduling my time or, you know, I 
I think I got in a, like a degree in psychology probably. I mean, I'm <laughs> sure I'm not the only person who, who feels that way, but I mean, I, I just, I went to counseling. I blamed it on anxiety and I finally just kind of, you know, listened to what somebody else had to say. And I still had those things like that was, the, you know, for me, I struggled a lot with anxiety. I'm right there I with you on that one. Kinda, really? Yeah, big time. And what was your yeah. anxiety like? It was, I mean, I would get panic attacks. I mean, I, I had my first panic attack when I was 15 and panic attack being a physical, basically feeling like I'm going to die, you know, just whatever. I, I, it's kind of like a feeling of being separate from your body and basically just like my throat closing in on me. And I mean, it's a scary experience, but I know now looking back that, yeah, I may be a little bit high strung by nature, but my anxiety was completely exacerbated by my drinking. Um, and so, but what I had done was I used my anxiety as kind of like an excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to the, you know, it was like, I went to the doctor and I was always talking about my anxiety. I went to therapy. I was talking about my anxiety, not about my drinking. They would ask me like, well, you know, do you drink or how much do you drink? And because I think because I didn't want to be drinking, I would always, you know, and because I was in the insanity of the disease, I would, you know, lie about, about my drinking. So they would prescribe me things that did not go well with the drinking that I was doing too. So you know, Xanax at one point. Um, yeah, basically different. alcohol in a pill. And what you're saying about anxiety and alcohol, I'm going to go ahead and Patrick Swayze you from the movie Ghost and just say ditto. Because everything you just said, I experienced 100%. My anxiety, I thought, was a separate condition from alcohol. However, looking back, hindsight's 2020, it was exacerbated 100% by alcohol. I'm going to touch up a little bit more what you said about taking direction and guidance from others. There's so much trepidation and hesitation to really accepting the instruction and advice from others, but really all you have to do is just stop and think about what your genius idea is. And I've done this personally. I'm like, I don't want to do that. But then I'm like, wait, my genius ideas have landed me in my current situation. And that really is not a leg to stand on because that doesn't work at all. Um, And you mentioned earlier – athlete. I feel like athletes, and I am going to mildly use that word with my name in that sentence, you know, but I played (laughs) a lot of sports. I played college football and you were a phenomenal swimmer. I feel like athletes, I've interviewed a couple of them, actually almost seven or eight. And I feel like they almost have a hard time getting sober just because of what's driven into our minds is like no pain, no gain. You can do this. If you fail, get up, try harder. And it's like I, my pride and ego were getting in the way due to like my athletic background of like, well, you know, yeah. I, I got I relapsed. I might as well get in the gym and just lift more weights and just figure this out on my own. And can you comment on that? Have you experienced anything like that? Yeah, actually, that's it's interesting that you say that. You know, I even still probably I, I don't know if I was aware that maybe it was like my ego and pride getting in the way, but I just you know, it's so instilled that I didn't know that there was another way. I think that like working hard, I mean, that was always something that was like, okay, if you try hard enough, you can do anything. And 
a lot of, you know, there was like high expectations too. So it was kind of like, you know, being an alcoholic was like, you're somehow weak or bad. And so it was, I mean, for me, it was like, I could, anything else in my life that I put my mind to and did, I could do and I could do well, but like alcohol, I mean, when it came to, you know, stop, stopping drinking, like I, I just couldn't seem to get it. And so, yeah, even just being being able to, to ask for help and to kind of just be, be willing to accept that and just sort of surrender and quit that fighting, you know, I think that like, I'm still kind of a fighter and it's channeled into different ways. It's into different avenues now, but I think it's said like, you know, you stop, you know, cease fighting in anyone and everything or whatever. And that's kind of the point. And there's so many takeaways from sports, but there's one takeaway that I didn't apply to alcohol. And you just said asking for help. I think every coach I've ever had, I'm like, Hey coach, how do I run faster? He's like, well, you're white. You know, know, I never asked for help. It's like something that I learned from, uh, in sports, like, Hey coach, like when the receiver turns this way, you know, what do I do? Who do I throw the ball to? And with recovery, it's just, or like, you know, getting sober, just wasn't the case. And actually my very first football coach, when I was in fifth grade, day one, he instilled this pride, dedication, desire. And we, every practice we closed out with PDD, that was like PDD on three. And it was pride, (laughs) dedication, and desire. And I remember like, you know, and and basically all my twenties, I would say it to myself, I'd wake up, you know, hungover. I'm like, all right, PDD, we got this. And now when I say it, I'm like, nope, take out the P it's just dedication and desire because the pride can get you into a lot of trouble. And it got me into a lot of trouble. Have you experienced that? Yeah, definitely. And actually, you know, just talking about it a little bit, like, I actually think that having, you know, I mean, there's sort of this all or nothing mentality, too. But I do think that for me, like, once I threw myself, I mean, I just imagine myself like just throwing myself on the ground and just being like, okay, fine. Um, And I almost feel like it's helpful now because I am coachable with my you know I'm like okay what do I need like yeah like what do I need to do and I remember like my first like 30 days I mean it was like I was just like okay what do I do like what do I need to do next okay you want me to call you every morning okay (laughs) I'll call you every morning and so I took it really seriously like I you know it's like once I finally got to that point I was 100% in you know so but I think the hardest part for me was the pride and the ego and just like feeling like I needed to be something like I didn't want anybody to know like how messed up my life had gotten. And like that part was what needed to, you know, fall away before I was able to just be like, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, Cause and you I know, think that's due it's to like, the stigma really. Um, of course, yeah. nobody wants to let other people know their life's falling apart at the seams, but it's kind of due to the stigma that we re- wait to the most acute moment before we reach out for help. And the phrase, oh, I skipped into the doors of recovery, the 12-step meeting said no one ever. I basically like tried to ninja <laughs> no. roll in there and, and didn't even successfully ninja roll, hit my head on the door frame, you know, and no pride yeah. at all. You, you basically just like roll in like, oh, no pride. You show up in the rooms. Um nobody comes in with pride. And that's the thing of, because being so prideful as an athlete, it's just hard. 
And, and Rachel actually backed me up a little bit. I'm curious, like, what were your drinking habits like? And, and did you ever try to moderate or put any rules in place? How much oh, did yeah. you drink? Yeah, so my drinking habits were I, I would drink a lot. Um, I didn't, I was never, I never felt like I drank normally. Um, even when I periodically like drank and I drank in high school. And I, I, I say I didn't really start drinking until I was like 22 or 23 because that's when I really started to drink like regularly. But before that, it was just, I mean, it wasn't just binge drinking I mean it's like every time I drank I would I mean I think I blacked out for the first time when I was like 15 it was like the second time I drank I don't remember quite a bit of it so I drank I mean I went through a period of my life that was I had gone through kind of like a tough breakup and of course I was like oh wow you know drinking really helps my feelings of anxiety and fear and so I I think I started out probably drinking like you know a few beers and then I realized I really liked wine because you could get I don't know it had more alcohol content and you know kind of toward the end well the first end I was probably drinking like at least three bottles of wine and you know, these bandit boxes online, I would drink like two of them and I would just wake up and, you know, I, when I was in my, like, I would kind of go on these like benders and I was all, it was kind of all in. I mean, I was like, all right, well, I know I'm an, an alcoholic, so I'm just going to keep drinking. And then, you know, it was weird because toward the end I had gotten, I had gotten in a car accident while I was drinking and I actually was driving back from Montana on Thanksgiving in 2012, and I had a my five-month-old golden retriever puppy with me, and I oh was drinking, God, I and I yeah, yeah, and I uh, got in a car accident, and the dog was ejected and killed. Mm. The car rolled like four times. I mean, I I'm so lucky that I didn't that I came out of that, but I was so. I think my blood alcohol level was like 0.3 something, and that was like a few hours down the road. I mean, that's I got my I got a DUI. Um, it was like the worst, most horrible, probably experience of my life. Rachel, um, I don't want to keep and, talking about that period, but when I got you okay. emailed me, I think a month or two ago, and my heart sank when I read that part of the email about your golden retriever puppy dying because I've got a beautiful yeah. standard poodle dog, and I just remember I could only think of Ben that same had it happened. Um, what was that like when you know they were like, "Hey, your your dog died"? It was horrible. I was completely devastated. That dog, like I worked in a community where there was like a lot of kids and families and he he came with me to work every day so he was really well loved by everybody and you know I don't know they're like family it's just like there's something about a dog that you just and I'm a dog person so Mm. you know it was just devastating like I'd never experienced so much pain in my entire life like I just didn't even know what to do with I didn't even at that moment I didn't care what happened to me I mean I was I was drunk and I just I was just in so much pain yeah I was it was horrible I think I I ended up you know they ended up booking me into jail and I just kind of remember being in this like jail cell and 
I had refused medical care on the scene. I mean, this is like the insanity of it too. I mean, I was like, I had been in a horrible car accident where my car was totaled. I'm lucky I'm alive. I was upside down in the car off the freeway and I'm refusing medical care and was in a jail cell. And I was just like, I felt so trapped and so alone. And I know that I ended up having to go to the hospital. They had to do some type of like medical check before they could actually like keep me in jail just to make sure that I was okay. And I remember telling the police officer there, I was like, I'm never, I'm never drinking again. <laughs> like I killed my dog. I kept like saying that over and over again, just like, I'm, I'm never going to drink again. And oh my gosh, I can't believe I killed my dog. And you would think that I would have stopped drinking at that point, but I didn't. Like, I, I think I, it, you know, my promise lasted a couple, two or three weeks, but it was definitely, like, the starting point of, of like, real recovery. Like it was starting definitely- point. That's a big value bomb right there. Same thing. When I got my DUI and I was in a suicide-proof jail cell, I was like, I'm so glad I'm here right now because I'm going to get sober. Again, I lasted like two to three weeks after that. But really, let's talk about sobriety fuel. When yeah, you got when you think about your dog, you're like, that is just sobriety fuel. Like you can't go back and drink. You can't. Like you have to stay sober at least for the golden retriever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, and like that actually opened up something that, like for me, I was so like so selfish, like so. All I could think about was myself and also, like, what was wrong? Even though I knew I was, like, an alcoholic, it's like, okay, well, what's wrong with me? Like, what was me? I'm so messed up or whatever. But when that happened, I realized, like, the impact that that didn't just have on me, but it had on, like, every and people who cared about me and people who also loved the dog. So, you know, there are a lot of kids that I worked with. I was, like, coaching swimming at that time and like the kids that were used to seeing him and being around him just the fact that they experienced sadness and the families and stuff it was like okay so this doesn't just affect you know it didn't just affect me it didn't mean didn't just you know make me sad it didn't just affect my dog Nash who died as a result of my choices but it also affected like a lot of people, like a greater community of people. And I think for me, it was like the, a little light went off, like, oh, shit, like my actions actually affect other people. Like people actually care, you know? I didn't, you know, in my mind, I was kind of like, oh, people don't really care about me or any, you know, it's just kind of in my own little bubble. And so to oh, see Rachel. that, that kind yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking like I'm struggling going on to this next question. Cause the Nash, I just keep thinking of Ben and I can, we can only be grateful and thankful for what we have, but you know, I'm great. You, you I'm sure you are grateful and thankful that you now have 2.5 years of sobriety. And so next question before we get to the rapid fire round is walk me through your recovery portfolio. What does a day in the life of Rachel look like? How do you stay sober now? Let's see. I usually do a morning meditation of some kind and, you know, I say some type of basically just having to let a higher power kind of guide me through the day. Um, I'm a very willful person, so I need need to just kind of stay open. And usually I 
basically just I connect usually with another person who's an alcoholic and, you know, stay connected with people. I go to 12-step meetings as frequently as I can. Um, and if I can't, I like to read or, like, listen to your podcast while I'm running. And I try to practice gratitude also. Um, it gives me – I mean, and honestly, I'm not – I don't, like, write 10 gratitudes out. I, I did in the beginning, but I, I try to, you know, even if it's just, like, I'm grateful – that I have oatmeal or like, you know, something like that. Or like, it's sunny out. That is huge for me because it's easy to lose perspective of the simple things. Love it. And Rachel, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Um, yeah. Number one, I'm not sure how we can top that drinking that the car wreck moment. Maybe this is it, but what was your worst memory from drinking? It would probably be that moment, yeah. Man, let's just go right to number two. Rachel, we've all heard of the aha moment. Have you ever had an oh shit moment where you're like, wow, I can't control my drinking? Yeah, when I tried to stop and I couldn't, I mean, that was like, oh shit, like I I can't control this. And that was pretty early on, so. Gotcha, Rachel. Number three, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? The plan in sobriety moving forward is just to do what I'm doing and, you know, I I don't ever want to lose my willingness to to show up and take my sobriety too for granted. You know, going to 12-step meetings has been really helpful for me and staying connected with people. And I, I hope I hope I stay sober. Like, it's definitely one day at a time and I put it out there. I don't want to say like, I'm, I'm not going to, or anything can happen because yeah, I mean, yes, anything can happen, but if it's my intention to stay sober, then, you know, I just want to keep moving toward that and doing, doing every can to stay on that trajectory. Absolutely. And Rachel, what's your favorite resource in recovery? I, re- I really like your podcast. I love, I Thank love you. that. I think it's, I think it's so cool that I wish I would have, I wish there would have been something like that, like, you know, five or six years ago when I was thinking about it and trying to go like online AA meetings. I mean, maybe it was there and I just didn't see it because it wasn't supposed to be the time, but I love, I love that. And I like it too, because if I'm running or something, I can just listen and it's really helpful. And then, you know, for me going to 12 step meetings is also, it's huge. And I really like the meditation books and stuff it just kind of keeps keeps my mind on when life gets better it's easy to get caught up in everything else so that some of that stuff just kind of keeps me grounded absolutely and Rachel in regards to sobriety what's the best advice you've ever received you know I have received a lot of really good advice but I think the thing that's helped me the most is to just do the next indicated thing regardless of how I feel about it because I, I had so much fear that I was so crippled in my feelings that I was so, you know, or, you know, didn't feel like doing something. And so it was kind of like, okay, just do the next thing, whatever that next thing is supposed to be, you know. I love it. Yeah. 
the next right thing, regardless of how you feel. And that's not always easy to do. And last question, Rachel, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery? Well, first of all, you have to really want to and really be ready, but that I feel like sobriety and that and this life is worth it. You know, I, I was told to imagine the best life possible. Like it's, you know, imagine the best life for yourself and, you know, multiply it. And that's been really true for me is like just getting sober. There's no way I would have been able to imagine how good life can be. And I mean, I'm two and a half years in and I'm hoping that it keeps getting better, but it's, there's, it's definitely hard and it's a lot of work and there's a lot of pain and, you know, shit, but it's so worth it. So worth it. I agree. And Rachel, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. Well, I didn't tell you this, but you might be an alcoholic if you drink hand sanitizer. Oh, wow. Can you do that? (laughs) Well, that's what I was doing towards the end of my drinking. Yeah. I was rationalizing drinking hand sanitizer instead of like, I don't know, wine. I mean, that's, that's where I was at. Did so. you actually pull the trigger, like push the pump in, in your mouth? <laughs> I actually did. Well, no, Don't I, do I, it. I was Googling the, the very first time I drank after two and a half years, I was Googling at like three o'clock in the morning, if I could drink rubbing alcohol or hydrogen peroxide. And if the answer had been like a mild, like, you know, <laughs> like a yellow light instead of like a straight up red light, do not drink. I definitely <laughs> would have drank hydrogen peroxide, but that can F you up big time. Um, thanks yeah. for sharing that, Rachel. Thank you so much for helping me stay sober today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I'll say it again. My eyes were getting teary when I heard her talk about how her dog was ejected from her vehicle during a drunk driving accident. I can just think of Ben, my standard poodle, who's two and a half years old right now. I drove many times under the influence with Ben in the back seat. That could have been me. Really, all that is, it's a yet. The yet scale for me was pretty low. The yet scale was only going in one direction. It was up. That hadn't happened to me yet. Oh, it was going to come had I continued to keep drinking. Before we depart Recovery Elevator, I've got some cool news. I've had a lot of emails, Facebook messages asking about the music used in this podcast. Well, about a year and a half ago, I asked a friend of mine who makes music if I could borrow some of his jams, his beats, and put them in. And so him and I, we're working and we're putting together the Recovery Elevator soundtrack, which should be available for download on iTunes in the next couple months. More on that to follow. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>